Father, we thank you for the fact that you are the good shepherd. And when we rest ourselves in you, we have no wants. Because you are the one who makes us lie down in green pastures. You lead us beside the quiet waters. You are the one, God, who restores our souls. May we center ourselves upon you each and every day. So that we might be reminded and that this reality would dwell in us. That you are the restorer of souls. May it be so today. Renew our understanding and vision of that today, we pray, Jesus. We thank you. Be in the center of our view and our attention in these moments remaining now. In your name we pray it. Together, amen. Amen. Well, good morning again to you. So happy to be here with you. And part of the question as thinking about this song and thinking about this particular week. And I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Psalm 96. Psalm 96 is just a question, why, why do we gather here week after week? And if you're like me and you grew up in a church, then uh, sometimes the answer is good that you say, well, this is just part of what I do. This is how I've segmented my time and, and I do this on purpose. But Often we don't give a lot of thought or regular enough reflection perhaps as to why it is that we gather regularly and why do we do the things that we do in worship. Sometimes we come to worship because we're bedraggled and and we're afraid from life. Life has just worn us thin, we're tattered at the edges. Work can be hard, family situations can be hard, relationships can be challenging, and we come because we need encouragement. We come because we seek healing. We come because we need the encouragement that comes both in uh, recognizing God, but also in being together and being able to support each other and knowing that our lives are woven together. And we do that on purpose. Worship comes from a word that literally means worth-ship. W-O-R-T-H. Worth-ship. And the whole word and idea of worship is to recognize that true worship is is understanding and entering into and welcoming in the, the worth of God. That God is worthy of your attention. He's worthy of, of your time. He's worthy of your life. And we learn in worship that life is much better when God is in it. That your life is much better when God is a part of it. That the world is much better when God, understood and worshipped rightly, is centered upon in various lives. There's two aspects I want to help us think about worship this morning. One is the attitude of worship and and how do I prepare my heart. and, And when I gather here week after week with you, what helps me frame an understanding of entering into this space? And that's one aspect. And the other is the activity of worship. So the attitude of worship, then also the activity of worship. And why do we do the things that we do? And why do we do them over and over and over again? Often in different ways, but we focus on some particular things. So those are the two aspects, and I want to drill down on each of those. But I want to start with the attitude of worship. One of the attitudes that we bring into worship is one of celebration. Another one is one of calibration. We're going to start with celebration. It's the idea of making much of God. 
In Psalm 96, verse 1, it says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. In verse 9, it says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. To celebrate God is to enter into not just that I I feel happy. And celebration isn't always just the, the final expression of happiness. It is, it is the ability to praise God. C.S. Lewis, who wrote a lot of great books about Christian faith, once wrote in his reflection on the Psalms, he, he described as he was coming to faith and that God was drawing him into a relationship with himself. And, and he describes when he came across the idea of praise and, and God... God invites praise out of people. God wants people to praise Him. And C.S. Lewis rightly began to ask the question, well, what kind of God desires people to praise Him? Because that sounds a whole lot like narcissism. Or uh, he began to think of the people in his life who were ego-driven. And he knew out of British culture, especially, that, that that was something that was unbecoming in a person. And, and he continued to seek out, why is it that God desires for you and for me to praise Him? Is this the kind of God we have? Is He an ego-driven, narcissistic God? And he comes to a, a deeper understanding, and this is what he writes. He says, it occurred to me that I had missed the most important thing about praise. The world resounds in praise. Lovers praising their beloved. Stamp collectors praising their stamp collections. Cricketeers praising the wonders of cricket. Now, he was English. Okay. This is what he wraps up by saying. He says, a joy is not complete until it overflows with praise. A joy is not complete until it overflows with praise. Your joy of life is not complete. At its end and fullest until it bubbles over with praise. Your understanding of life and mine is not come to its fullest sense until it overflows with praise for God. That is why God invites us to praise. That is why God says, when you gather to worship, you are to praise my name. Because when praise is absent, joy is not understood. And Jesus came, and he describes in the Gospel of John how he had come to give you joy. Not joy like the world gives, but the joy of Jesus himself will learn and find its abode in you. We come in celebration of the love of God because God loves you. We can come in worship and we celebrate the love of God. We celebrate the grace of God. We've even sung about it today, that God does not treat you in the way that you deserve. He doesn't treat me in the way that I deserve because of my sinfulness. But His grace overcomes sin And I celebrate that. We celebrate the grace of God about what God has done in Christ. We celebrate God. So one of the attitudes of worship is one of celebration. The other is one of calibration. We gather and worship and we bring the attitude of calibration. And part of that is is learning to let God calibrate my heart toward His That I want to value the things that are valuable to God. I want the things that matter to God to matter to me. And that's what God wants for you. And if we do not train ourselves to learn what matters to God, the world will fill that void. 
The world will, it'll shape your life and it will train your heart to value things. And sometimes they're not the things that are important to God. And so this is something that demands personal vigilance to come back and to allow God to calibrate my life. In other words, when we calibrate something, some of you work in fields where, where you're tinkering and you have to calibrate things. It's, it's a fine tuning. It's a turning down the things that you don't need or want or that are not helpful. And it's a turning up of the things that are missing in your life. That's what God wants to do in your life in the calibrating effect. Is that He wants to turn down the volume of unbiblical and ungodly influence in our lives. And He wants to begin to turn up our embrace of God's Word and our walking according and in obedience to what God has called us to be. So the attitude of worship is one of celebration. We learn to praise God. And it's calibration. We allow God to tune our hearts to Him. So what is it that has a primary claim on your life? That's what calibration helps us understand. Is it your work schedule and work life? Is it your school calendar? Is it your spouse? Your children? All those things are important, but we cannot allow them to have the primary claim over my life. And so it takes constant review and evaluation. And that's why worship, and we come regularly in worship so that God can calibrate our hearts. He can remind us of what is most important. And He speaks over us that we are precious to Him and beloved, His beloved. And because of that, He wants to give us uh, the life that he, we so need and He desires to give to us. Here's what calibration also does. is It is an idol breaker. In verse 5, it says, For all the gods of the nation are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. This chapter, I, I forgot to tell you, is comes out of uh, a passage out of 1 Chronicles when the Ark of the Covenant is being relocated back to the city of David. And this is a psalm that David wrote in celebration, in worship, in praise for the fact that this symbolic presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant was coming back to its rightful place. And in this, he, he describes how uh, God is an idol breaker. He's the one that helps fix our eyes more purposely and with clearer focus on Him. Some of you are familiar with Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit books or movies. Um, I, I fell in love with them uh, many years ago, right around the, when the movies were coming out. I began to read the books really quickly, try to try to keep one one book ahead when the movies started to come out. And one of the things out of many that I love about the stories is, if, if you know the, the, their fantasy writings, and part of what J.R. Tolkien is writing about is a world that has very clear cut evil and good, and the evil is trying to overwhelm the good, and they have characters like orcs and goblins, and they are the personification, the embodiment of everything that is out to attack that which is good. And so the good guys in the story, they'll have these weapons. And the weapons are to battle the bad guys, and that which wants to, to snuff out the good. And, and these weapons sometimes have names. The, the sword that Bilbo Baggins had was called Sting. And then there's another weapon that was described as, this isn't its name, its nickname was Foe Hammer. I love that. Everything just saying it just fills me with strength and confidence. And that's the kind of weapon, if I had to go to battle, I want to take foe hammer with me. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to take piece of paper weapon. I want foe hammer. 
to go with me. When God describes worship and the calibrating effect of worship in our lives, he says that it helps us recognize the idols of our life. Because throughout the Old Testament and Bible, the great enemy of worship of God is idolatry. It's the temptation that we still have to put other things in a primary place above God. Now, most of us don't walk around saying, this is my idol. And most of us don't walk around with little statues in our homes. But we do, often, if we're not careful, we allow other things in our lives to take priority over the worship of God. We allow other things to say, I have claim over your life. Instead of letting the gospel of Jesus say, you are not your own, because you have been bought at a price. And now you are called to worship and to love the Lord Jesus. That is the voice. That is why worship becomes a faux hammer to idols in your life. And that is why you and I need to be worshiping regularly together. It is so important because these uh, ideas allow allows God to calibrate our lives. Also with the calibration, it's the idea that worship is not primarily to come and receive something. Worship primarily is for me to come with an attitude of giving. I come with an attitude of giving my life back to God. And every week when we gather in this place, it's a reminder that my life is wrapped in Christ Jesus. And He is the first and most important priority of my life. And when that is set, and I'm reminded of that every single week, it allows all of the other things in my life to flow properly. But when we get that upside down, it clogs up our lives. When we, when we live out of a place where we allow other things to be more important than God, it's like putting a cork in the bottle of your life. And your life gets stuck. And worship, and weekly worship, is a reminder that God is first Jesus is my primary relationship, and I need to nurture that relationship. And in doing it, it's like God is pulling the cork out, and He reorients my life, and everything in my life begins to flow more properly. When my relationship with God is right, guess what? I'm a better husband. When my relationship with God is right, I'm a better parent, I'm a better employee, I'm a better boss, I'm a better neighbor, I'm better with my money. When my relationship with God is right, I'm focused on honesty in my relationships. I'm focused on on honesty and integrity in all of my financial dealings. I'm focused on giving of myself instead of taking from others. You see, when, when our relationship with God is right, everything else gets oriented correctly. I want you to hear some verses about a church relationship The type of relationship that a church, a worshiping community, is supposed to have. You want to hear these words? This was spoken not to a marriage relationship primarily. Not to a husband-wife or a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. Although it has application there. But it's spoken to a worshiping community. A worshiping community that... That I I know that I come and I gather together with others on purpose because I want to learn to be patient with you. And I need you at times to be patient with me. And I need to know when I come into worship, I don't on purpose, I try not to be overly distracting. But you know what, I'm also patient with others in the church. 
And I know that we welcome children into our worship service, and sometimes we have to be patient with our kids when they're talking and, and making too much noise. And that's okay. That's part of being together. Hear these words to a worship community just like this. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. If I were writing this, I would have said love is the foe hammer of evil. It always protects, love does. It always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Love never fails. Those are some of the attitudes that we are to bring into worship. Now, what about the activities? We'll move through these pretty quickly. There are certain activities that the church over centuries have found to be most helpful in the shaping of individual lives and the shaping of communal lives together. And so these are the practices that that we we rehearse time and time again in different ways. And praise the Lord uh, for that. But part of the work and the activity of the church is preaching. Preaching is an important aspect, and this is one of the gifts from the Reformation period. It was for those churches influenced by the Reformation, like this one has been, is that preaching was put more in the centerpiece of a worship service regularly, week after week, than anything else. Here's what the Scripture says in verse 2. It says to proclaim His salvation day after day. What is preaching? Does the church preach because a pastor has a big ego and just needs people to listen to him every week? <laughs> you, you may be surprised, but I'd rather do anything else in the world. Because my temperament is introverted, and it's hard to stand up in front of people. But I feel that this is part of what God has called me to do, not because I need it. Not because I need praise or adulation or stroking. But because a church needs regular reminding about under what do we sit. And it is the scripture. That's why this church never looks at any other book than the Bible for our teaching. There are other books that God might use, but no book is like the Bible. There are other books that might be helpful in your Christian life, but no other book is filled with the Spirit of God and is living and active to penetrate and to heal your life than the Bible. And so we come back to the Bible week after week after week after week because it's not just to stuff our heads with more historical knowledge. I love history. It's not just to fill our lives with, wow, that was cool about the Roman world in the first century. That's so helpful, but that's not the point. The point is to learn to live under the teaching of the Scripture and to let it have authority over our lives. And so we preach. We preach. Not because I need to speak. I'd rather be quiet. But we preach because God needs to be heard. We preach because God's Word speaks. And that's what we try to do every single week. Is because we need it. And this is how a faith community is built. Singing is an activity of our worship. And haven't we seen a great... A great display of singing and participated in that today from our choir to the Fong family, to our many of our youth playing instruments, and to Steve's great leadership. Aren't we blessed with the singing of this church? So often we'll have songs supported by the organ. And, and we, 
we welcome the gifts and the abilities of people musically to help guide us in the singing of God's Word. Have you ever noticed when the choir sings that almost always the Scripture is read right before it because what you're hearing is a musical representation of the words of God? Because singing matters. You know why? Because in the Christian faith, it's always a joy-filled flow of God. We have been filled with the love and the redemption and the forgiveness of Christ Jesus. And that flows out of us. The response is one of joy and singing. That's why song has always been and will always be a centerpiece of the church's life and of worship I've come to be describing uh, TBC's worship as broad spectrum. That we we welcome a lot of different styles and a lot of different uh, classical uh, from uh, things anchored in history, uh, ancient things like in your your hymnal, I think it's number 11. There's a song that, that the words were first written back in the 1200s. And so we celebrate the music that is ancient and centuries and generations old. St. Francis of Assisi wrote that particular song. All creatures of our God and King. And we'll sing sometimes songs that were written this same year. Because it's important. It's important. I love uh, one of the the writings out on the banners, uh, the, the posters outside about why I love TBC. One person wrote, I love hearing people sing together. At TBC, to hear the voices blend together. Singing is a humongous part of what we do. Verse 1 again says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Preaching is an important part of what we do. Singing is an irreplaceable part of what we do. Praying is a large part of who we are. Jesus himself described that his father's house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And we try to take that seriously. We try to center part of our service in prayer. If you're uh, part of our Wednesday night, if you're not, you're welcome to come. Six o'clock every Wednesday, we gather in this space to pray together, to pray for one another. Someone else wrote out there that, that every single prayer request gets answered or gets. Here's what it says. Let me quote it. It does get answered, not always in the way we want, but it says, I love TBC because they pray for every single prayer request. And it's true. When we stand up here and we invite you to jot down prayer requests, we, we really mean it. Because your staff prays for it weekly. Those who gather here every Wednesday pray for those things because we take prayer seriously. Prayer really does change things. Sometimes the situation is changed in prayer and what God does through those prayers. Sometimes our view of the situation changes. But God will change things because of prayer. A fourth activity of worship is responding. In verse 3 it says, Uh, Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous deeds among all peoples. You know, response is part of what we do with the Scripture. We we hear the Scripture, but then we're also called to respond to it. If you were here last week, you might remember, we focused on Matthew 28 and the resurrection story of Jesus. And, And you might remember that we looked at the women when they came to the tomb and the angels sat upon the rolled away stone. The tomb was open and it was empty. And when the women heard the message that Jesus has been raised from the dead, their response was fear and joy. Fear and joy. 
They weren't overwhelmed by fear, but they were driven forward by joy. They were on their way. The Bible says that they were running to go meet the disciples. And on the way, they, they meet Jesus. The response of the angel was one of fear and joy. The response to Jesus, the Bible says, was worship. When Jesus then, a few verses later, meets the disciples, their response to the resurrected Jesus was one of worship. And right after that, Jesus gives the great commission that we are to go into the world... Making disciples, baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has taught us. And we're reassured that He is with us all the way until the end comes. You see, worship always leads a church into missions. And missions continues until worship is established. Worship leads a church into missions. And we, we identify areas around the world where worship of the one true God is not happening. And we are driven there in missions. And that mission continues until worship is established. Does that make sense? Worship leads us into mission. And mission continues until worship is established. And that's the work of the church. We are a worshiping church. And we are an on-mission church. Because God's work is not finished through us. And where does our mission begin? It begins right where we live. Jesus said before he ascended back to heaven that you will be my witnesses first where you live in Jerusalem. He was talking to people who lived in Jerusalem and then to Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So our mission are always starts right where I am. And we as a church go with these five who are going to North Africa, but it's always both and both. And finally, one of the activities of worship is preparing It's preparing. There's preaching, there's singing, there's praying, there's responding. And then there's preparing. We are preparing for the future of God. Here are these last verses of chapter 96. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Why? Then the trees of the forest will sing for joy. What a picture. They will sing before the Lord, for He comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His truth. This is a picture of the end of time. When the creation that now sits in groaning because of the fall and because of sin is now restored. The new heaven and the new earth have now become real. And we sit as worshipers, glorying in the return of the King. Marveling at the beauty of the king, wondering at his justice, watching at his mercy, reveling in his forgiveness. This is what we do. We are preparing for the end. We are preparing actually for eternity, not just the end, but for eternity, that which we will do for all time. We worship. We are worshiping people focused on the beauty of God. And yes, we're prayerful in just a few weeks. We will see part of. Our other acts of worship, baptism. Next Sunday, we'll participate in the Lord's Supper. These two help us focus on the cross of Jesus, on His life, on His death, on His love for you, on His willingness to forgive your sin and to make you new and clean in Him. So today, have you welcomed Christ into your life? Have you understood that you are in need of His presence and His touch? That your life is out of whack? 
that it's off kelter because you're not allowing Jesus to be the centerpiece and to orient all of the rest of your life. Why do you come to worship? Why do you come to worship? If you leave worship and you regularly say, well, I didn't get much out of that. I want to gently ask you a question. Why? Why? If biblical preaching has been done and praying has been sincere and singing has been heartfelt, why do you not get much out of it? Who's, who's responsible for that? That's a question I've asked myself many times when those words have come off of my lips in different places. And so I want to ask you, and I want to invite you, week after week, to consider the attitude of your worship and to consider entering into, if you're not, if you struggle joyfully, and entering into the worship of God, where the preaching of God is present and the praying of God's people is sincere and fervent, the fruit of God's Spirit will be there. Invite God, if you haven't, into your life today. Father, we pray this morning that you would be the centerpiece of our lives, that our worship in this place together, that our worship daily in our our own spaces would be sincere and fervent, and we would seek and know you, that you would fill us, that we could come in our worship with these right attitudes, that we would would come with celebration, and we would come... Uh, for calibration, that you would touch us in these ways and that your joy would be in us so that our praise might be complete, that you would fine-tune our hearts and turn down the volume of the things of the world that clamor for our attention and call us to things that aren't pleasing to you and turn up our hearing of that which you most want to teach us. And God, help us to sit under your scripture, to respond to you faithfully. Help us. We need your help. None of us are perfect. Help us to help each other, to encourage each other, and to strengthen each other each day of our lives. We want to be a worshiping community that worships in spirit and in truth, and we need your help to do it. And we pray this in the name of Jesus together. Amen.